0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a review of this week's local election results. How the Missing in America Project honors departed veterans. I'll talk with author Melinda Snodgrass, who is a guest at this weekend's Tuscon Science Fiction Convention. And meet two of the thousands of volunteers who help keep Arizona's parks and trails in top condition. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Voters across Tucson and Pima County cast their ballots on Tuesday, deciding matters ranging from city government to school funding to park improvements. Joining me now to tell us about the vote is Christopher Conover. Welcome. Thank you. So it seems the Tucson City Council will stay Democratic for the time being.
1: It will. Councilwoman Karen Ulick, a Democrat, retired. She was replaced by Paul Durham, who is a big solar advocate. So that's one of the big things he is going to be pushing is more solar and renewable energy for the city. And then Steve Kozachik was up for re-election. He's a Democrat. He won. And Councilman Fimbris was up for re-election. He's also a Democrat. He
0: was unopposed, so obviously he won. Prop 204 could have had a big impact on the city's sales tax.
1: But it failed. Prop 204 was the question to raise the sales tax to use that money for high-quality preschool education, and it failed. And it failed resoundingly.
0: So we won't be doing that funding through a sales tax let's talk about school board uh, funding. There were several budget overrides that were on the ballot. Um, how did some of these fare?
1: They all failed with the exception of the Flowing Wells School District. Only the parents or the homeowners in Flowing Wells were willing to do the override.
0: All the others failed. And there was a pretty close call on two propositions that will impact the future of the Tucson Zoo. Propositions 202 and 203 took
1: until the end of the week uh, for counting to see how they were going to turn out. They both ended up passing. Prop 202 passed 53-47 and Prop 203 passed basically 50-49, to 49, so very close. But the zoo funding is now going to happen.
0: Out in Oro Valley, there was some money for park improvements on the ballot. Uh, what was the decision there?
1: That would have been a property tax increase for Oro Valley uh, homeowners, and that also went down resoundingly. Uh, So if Oro Valley wants to improve the parks up there, they're going to have to come up with another way to fund
0: it. The takeaway seems to be that people see lots of room for improvement in various areas of the Tucson infrastructure, but they're not willing to pay for it at this time.
1: At this time, and I think that's the key. We have seen statewide uh, and even in the city Uh, People are willing to pay more taxes for roads, more taxes for police and fire. We've passed those locally very recently in years past. uh, We passed an increase in the state sales tax to fund education for a specific number of years. That's now gone away. So people are at times willing to increase their taxes, but as you very well point out, this time around, people weren't
0: willing. And Christopher, there was news this week that concerns the 2018 midterm elections. Can you bring us up to date on that?
1: Hard to believe we're already talking about 2018, but Election Day is now officially less than one year away Uh, this week. We hit the one-year mark, and some rumors began floating out of Washington early in the week that Martha McSally, uh, our congresswoman from the 2nd Congressional District here in Southern Arizona, was going to get out of that race and run for Senate. She apparently told her Republican colleagues on the Arizona delegation that that was going to be her decision. Um, Those rumors were floating. Nobody would confirm it. And then Representative uh, Schweikert from the Phoenix area uh, did confirm that to the Associated Press. So far, McSally's office has been mum. We've asked them directly, and they haven't said anything.
0: Well, our listeners can get the latest anytime at news.azpm.org. Thanks for sharing your time, Christopher. Absolutely. This show is airing on Veterans Day weekend, but for one group of Tucsonans, honoring departed soldiers is something they do year-round. The local chapter of the Missing in America Project tries to find out about recently deceased veterans and then make sure that they are interred with full military honors. In May, Zach Ziegler visited their Memorial Day ceremony to bring us this story.
2: The sun is starting to peak over the Catalina Mountains in Oro Valley, and Bob Day is at work, directing traffic at Adair Funeral Home. This is an easy here. The parking lot is filling up with motorcycles, not a typical sight for Saturday morning. Many of those showing up are in leather vests and jackets with patches denoting that the wearer is a veteran. Others are in police uniforms from a variety of law enforcement organizations, sheriffs from multiple counties, and police departments from all over Southern Arizona. They arrive, shake hands, hug, and are happy to see each other once again. The assembled are called together by Ed Torres, one of the event's organizers.
3: All right, good morning.
2: Torres is the Pima County Coordinator for the Missing in America Project, the organization responsible for today's ceremony. He's speaking with those who have shown up to fill them in on what's about to happen. We're
3: fixing to go into the chapel. Those that want to participate go ahead, can go ahead and go in there. If you don't want to participate, Stay out here, just be mindful
4: that there is a service going on Part of what
2: Torres and his counterpart, Sean Fund, are doing right now is finding volunteers to carry the cremated remains of veterans, many of whom were homeless or impoverished when they passed. Fund is the law enforcement liaison for the group. He helped organize the large showing of officers who will act as guides for the motorcade. He tells the veterans and supporters that have assembled they will not forget this day.
4: Believe me when I say that, I still identify with the first time I ever carried cremains and it had a big effect on me and that's why I'm here.
2: Fund hands out white gloves to those who will volunteer as they head into the funeral home.
5: James Albert Malthan, United States Air Force.
2: Each person gets a slip of paper with the name me? of whom they will carry. Right, then so the chaplain under, offers uh, a short eulogy carry. and prayer.
6: Every single one of us who served an oath to defend the constitution of the united states against all enemies foreign and domestic that oath does not come with an expiration date
2: bob day who was conducting traffic outside is now doing the same inside walking people through how to pick up the urn they will carry it
5: will be there so the first person will walk to there to pick up his cremains a turn uh, we've been carrying left over right there's probably some back and forth between branches of the service where there's right over left.
2: The process begins. The volunteers pick up the brass urns of 30 servicemen and one military spouse, and carry them out of the funeral home. The remains are carried down a walkway that is lined with American flags to a special hearse trailer attached to a three-wheeled motorcycle. Once they are loaded, the chaplain offers one more prayer for safe travel.
6: Please have your angels spread their wings of protection and keep us all safe.
2: The flags are rolled up and stacked in the back of Fun's SUV, and organizers go over the route one more time. The
3: first, making a right all the way up. To
4: the, the thing be, the orange thing.
6: Which yeah.
2: devolves into a brief debate about citrus. Yeah.
6: You know, a tangerine is a small orange. orange. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Before an officer gets things back on track. What yeah. time you pull
6: out? No later than nine.
2: Yeah, about five minutes. And then, they're on their way to the new Veterans Cemetery in Marana.
6: All the service flags need to come up this way and line up together.
2: Some people arrive at the ceremony ahead of the procession in order to prep for the arrival. As they prepare, the motorcycles can be heard driving up Luckett Road to the cemetery. The hearse pulls up and each urn is ceremoniously handed to an active duty member of the military branch in which the deceased served. The ceremony begins when planes fly overhead and perform a maneuver known as the Missing Man Formation. Then, the chaplain offers an invocation.
1: Our hearts are saddened by the loss of these great warriors who devoted their lives to
2: sustain our freedom. Fund and others from the Missing in America Project speak.
4: I am often humbled by their respective service, their love of country, and sense
2: of duty. The last roll call is taken, each name is okay. read a final time, James and a bell H. is tolled.
0: U.S. Army, Vietnam. Haring, Robert E., U.S. Army, Vietnam.
2: Then, an Army Honor Guard offers a 21-gun salute. And a bugler plays taps. Flags are presented to the families of deceased soldiers who are in attendance.
6: On behalf of the President of the United States, the United States Army, and a grateful nation, please accept this flag as a symbol of our appreciation for your loved one's honorable and faithful service.
2: Bob Day, who acted as Master of Ceremonies, closes the ceremony.
5: Okay, we are now down to one of the two most important aspects of today. The veterans are just about to be picked up again and escorted down to their actual final resting places.
2: The active duty service members pick up the urns and carry them to their individual niche in the columbariums. Once the ashes are in place, the chaplain offers a final eulogy for the fallen.
6: The idea of a memorial is nothing new. In the book of Joshua, we're reminded of the memorial stones that the 12 tribes were asked to carry across the river to remember the Lord parting the ways of the water for them. The ancient Celts used to have a cairn of remembrance. Young warriors would go off to battle and place a small granite stone on a pile. After the battle they would return and remove a stone. The stones that remained were the warriors that did not return.
2: Then crews from the cemetery bolt the plaques in place over the niches. As they do so, many of the assembled say their goodbyes to each other and ride off. Sean Fun says many of those who were just laid to rest were in a situation where, if not for an organization such as Missing in America Project, their remains could have gone unclaimed.
4: There are a few that have been actually recovered from the coroner's office they had passed on the street there are others that are in nursing homes who were singles they had no
2: family but some of those who are buried had family who chose to wait for their loved one to be interred with full military honors Fun says that while today's ceremony is about the 31 people being laid to rest he hopes that it resonates beyond that
4: i hope at the very least that the younger generation will observe something like this and their parents will reinforce the point of, we owe our veterans for the freedoms every day we don't even think
2: about. But ultimately, the day has carried the slogan of the Missing in America Project.
4: Never forgotten, never forgotten, and it never will be. Not as long as I and other people are here to recognize them for their service. They will never be forgotten.
0: That story was produced by Zach Ziegler, there's a companion TV story about Missing in America that you can watch now on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Stay tuned for more of the show after this break. Welcome back to Arizona Spotlight. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevancies until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Now, sooner or later, this man, or others like him, will succeed in replicating Commander Data. Now, the decision you reach here today will determine how we will regard this creation of our genius. It will reveal the kind of a people we are, what he is destined to be. It will reach far beyond this courtroom and this one android. It could significantly redefine the boundaries of personal liberty and freedom, expanding them for some, savagely curtailing them for others. Are you prepared to condemn him and all who come after him to servitude and slavery?
6: Your Honor, Starfleet was founded to seek out new life. Well, there it sits. waiting.
0: When Star Trek The Next Generation launched in 1987, it was off to a pretty shaky start, and it took fans a while to come on board. The eventual evolution of the show into a science fiction favorite was heavily influenced by writer and script editor Melinda Snodgrass. Today, she lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and is best known as a novelist and equestrian. She works closely with her friend George R.R. R. Martin on the long-running series called Wild Cards. Melinda Snodgrass will be a guest of honor at this weekend's 44th Annual Tuscon Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Convention, and that gave me a chance to talk with her about the many ways that her first career as a lawyer has influenced her craft.
7: I'm actually fascinated with this because um, my friend George R. R. Martin and I, we, we end up calling each other like after the flash almost every week because it drives us both crazy that you know they, they just sort of arrest and illegally confine people without due process or a lawyer or a jury or anything else anything and those else. cells don't appear to have bathrooms which also makes me nuts. Um, and so this has been something that's been very much on my mind is you know I was an attorney before I became a writer. so these issues of extra legal behavior, in the superhero universes is, um, you know, I think a real issue and something that George and I have addressed a lot in the Wild Card books. um, We've tried to actually take a serious look at how the justice system would operate if you had people with superpowers.
0: Well, right now, superheroes, of course, are huge in the media. Uh, Wild Cards was really ahead of its time because here was a fiction series that addressed um, superpowers, mutants, telepathy, all of these concepts in a real world setting. To someone who hasn't read these books and is on the outside looking in on this, how would you describe the fundamental differences between the Wild Card universe and, say, the Marvel and DC universes?
7: In a couple of ways, we dead is dead in Wild Cards. Um, in comics, nobody's dead until you see the body, and, and not even then, as my friend Lynn Ween used to say. And I think that cheapens it. It um, it asks for an emotional response and then tells you it doesn't matter. In Wild Cards, we make certain that death has consequences. The other thing we do is, we, as I said earlier, we take a look at the effect that superpowers would truly have on the world in a very real-world way, um, and I think that's different. And we also have a single origin story. It was an alien virus that re- was released on Earth in a field test, and the consequences were great for some tiny minority of people, but terrible for many people. And we have a class of people called the Jokers who've been twisted and deformed by this virus that enables us to talk about issues of class and bigotry um, and fear of the other in a way that I think science fiction does spectacularly well. So those are the things that I think set Wild Cards apart from the Marvel and DC universe.
0: In the Wild Card universe, are Jokers covered under ADA regulations? (laughs)
7: Actually, I'm raising that. We are developing it for television right now with Universal Pictures and um, Universal Films. And uh, that's actually one of the issues we're going to raise. Yes, technically they are, but it takes lawsuits to force that to happen. Um, And we even have attorneys who specialize in jokers' rights in our our books.
0: If you have someone who, say, spontaneously bursts into flame at regular intervals...
7: Can you deny them... To, yeah, keep them out of your apartment.
0: Or, yeah. yeah, or public spaces. I mean, we know you can't shout fire in a crowded movie theater, but can you turn to fire in a crowded movie theater?
7: <laughs> Probably not. Endangering <laughs> of others. Yeah. And, you know, is that I mean, that's a fascinating, a fascinating case. You know, this person is being your greater good versus personal liberty and personal rights. So um, and how much of a danger are they? <laughs> Great idea. Thank
0: you. Urban fantasy is now an established genre in fiction, but it seems like you've kind of discovered this area of legal fantasy.
7: Yes. Well, I was an attorney before I became a writer, and um, I've used it. I mean, the script that started my career in Hollywood was based on the Dred Scott decision that I wrote for Star Trek. Um, My urban fantasy series that I write is about a young woman lawyer. And uh, I did a series about a federal court judge writing circuit in outer space. I mean, law is the underpinnings of civilization. You know, you can't, you can't have a peaceful society without some sort of functioning legal structure. And I find that it's often overlooked in, in uh, science fiction in particular, in, in many novels, unless they happen to be, you know, legal thrillers. I think people don't stop to think about how much the law permeates every part of our lives and how important it is.
0: One of the most famous episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, which you are credited with, Lieutenant Commander Data, is put on trial to determine whether or not he has civil rights, equal rights, and can prevent himself from being dismantled in the name of science. Give us some sort of insight into Measure of a Man and what kind of an episode that has been for you over the years. If you see it now, do you still agree with the legal decisions that you as a writer made in creating it?
7: I totally agree with the decisions. I mean, basically, um, I looked at the Dred Scott decision. That's what measure is. Dred Scott was an infamous Supreme Court decision in which a black man was ruled to be property and not a person. And therefore, he was returned to his slave master, even though he had escaped into a free territory. And I thought this can apply to data. He's not a human. He is, in fact, a machine. And does he have the same rights, or is he the property of Starfleet Command? I mean, one of the things I thought that Star Trek Next Generation was lacking was a sense of conflict and high stakes. Um, I loved the original series from when I was a little kid, and I wanted to write something that could easily have been an episode of original Trek that had that, that sense of stakes and real big issues to be discussed. And the other thing, too, that worked for me in that writing that script is that I could pit Picard and Riker against each other, because if you don't have a functioning JAG office, if you have an issue when you're on a ship at sea, then the captain always defends and the first officer always prosecutes. And so it was perfect, because there wasn't enough tension, I didn't feel, between the between the crew of the of the Enterprise, the way there was between Kirk and Spock and McCoy. And so I was able to uh, give them some, some meat, something to play with. And Jonathan, I think, just did a wonderful job um, as Riker, you know, torn between his desire to, frankly, best Picard and also his desire not to win the case because Data was his friend. So, um, you know, I, I, I think that script, and that episode holds up and I, I credit the actors with just doing a beautiful job on it for making it as memorable as it as it ended up.
0: In going to conventions and doing public appearances like you're going to be doing in Tucson this weekend, um, how have you seen fandom change? Have you seen a visual change in what constitutes the science fiction community?
7: You know, not really. I've always felt like Science fiction fans, for the most part, have always been dreaming of that United Earth and and all of us going together to the stars. I think it's a place where anybody can come and fit in and be welcomed, and that's one of the reasons I fell in love with the community. I didn't even know it existed until I was like 30. Um, I'd been reading science fiction since I was a little kid, but I didn't know this whole group of people existed, and it was like I'd found my family. So I'm not sure that I see any profound changes. I mean, yes, as society has changed, um, SFWA, the Science Fiction Writers of America, used to be predominantly men men as members. And now I think it's half and half, and it might even be a little few more women than men um, who are members of it. Um, I think we were always sort of ahead of the curve, and that makes me very proud of the community. I think we've always stood up for women's rights, gay rights. People feel comfortable in a science fiction setting, no matter what their situation is.
0: Well, one more thing that you mentioned in an email to me was that you ride in the mornings and in the afternoons, you ride. And
7: mm-hmm.
0: I thought, this sounds like a woman who has a life that she has created for herself and that she loves.
7: Yes. <laughs> yes, in short, um, and and my horses are. I mean, in fact, I'm going to go this afternoon I'm, to ride. I think riders spend too much time in this being sedentary and in their own heads, and I think doing something physical is vitally important in order to be creative. So I I ride my two horses, and uh, since I'm an upper-level dressage rider, it's uh, really hard work. It's a workout. Um, it's not just going on a trail ride with these guys because they're they're fancy show horses. So I spend a lot of time with them, and they they help keep me grounded.
0: I talked with author Melinda Snodgrass, a guest of honor at the 44th annual Tuscon Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Convention. It's happening this weekend with dozens of guests, gaming, cosplay, a dealer's room, and a continuous marathon of hard-to-find movies. The extended version of Star Trek The Next Generation's Measure of a Man episode by Melinda Snodgrass will screen Saturday at noon. Tuscon is Friday through Sunday at the Sheraton Tucson Hotel at 5151 East Grant Road. Millions visit Arizona's parks and attractions each year, but few probably think about the unpaid people behind the scenes who are vital to these places' operations. Next, Tony Paniagua introduces us to a couple who dreamed for decades of being right where they are now.
3: A visit to a distant location can often leave a memorable impression on you. Perhaps it was the clear blue skies and bright golden sunset in the desert, or a hidden creek among the trees. That's what happened to Jerry Bice when he lived in Arizona when he was younger. It took a while, a long while, but Jerry finally returned with his wife, Lita, when they retired.
6: I was working in Arkansas. Uh, I was stationed here at Fort Huachuca back in the 70s when I was 17. And I told my wife, I said one of these days, I'm going back to Arizona. So when I hit 65, I came back to Arizona. (laughs) Are you glad he brought you to this state?
5: Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, it's got its own beauty. It took me a little bit to get used to, but I'm, I'm coming around in that, so it's, it's nice. It's a different type than what I'm used to in Arkansas.
3: However, with year-round opportunities for fishing and other activities, Patagonia Lake State Park reminds them of home. It is much greener than the surrounding desert, and you can even go out on a boat every day. So when the vices were looking for a place to volunteer, now that they have more time on their hands, they chose this park. The lake covers more than 250 acres and a diverse ecosystem.
5: We actually came back in March and camped out, and we fell in love with it. And we were in the visitor center talking to some of the volunteers, and they told us about the program. And that's how we got in contact with it and started doing it, and it's been very rewarding. We've got to meet a lot of people from a lot of places and stuff
3: they're out in about at least four hours a day, five days a week. Along with brooms, mops, and other tools, they're also armed with positive attitudes and easy smiles. Nothing is too good for them. They get their hands dirty, and they're proud.
5: I work in the visitor center, and then I help out in the field, cleaning bathrooms, picking up trash, and just cleaning the whole area.
6: We have cigarette butts, we have bottle caps, we have pool tabs, we have everything. If we see it, we pick it up. Mm -hmm. We want the park to stay beautiful and, you know, we've been uh, so many times people have walked up to us and said, this park is really kept nice. In
3: return, the Bices get some perks from the state such as free electricity and a hookup for their camper.
5: They let you know that you're appreciated and stuff, so, yeah.
1: I'll be honest, uh, these volunteers are a huge asset.
3: Mary Warman is the volunteer program manager for Arizona Parks and Trails, which operates nearly three dozen parks. At any given time, Warman has about a thousand volunteers in the system. They contribute about $5 million worth of work to the state each year. They are
1: what Arizona State Parks and Trails represents. Uh, without them, we cannot provide the wonderful experience to Arizonans or to any visitors from out of state. Uh, we literally have a wonderful program because of the volunteer help.
3: And Warman says you don't necessarily have to be an outdoors type to join the teams around the state
1: got volunteers that are stronger at working with the public and social skills and presentation Then I have volunteers who don't want to do that type of volunteering. They would prefer to be behind the scenes and, and helping file stuff and stocking inventory. So there's something for everyone.
3: For Lita and Jerry Bice, their time at Patagonia is part of a plan to see the country by working at different state and national parks.
6: Well, we're going on this little adventure, we call it, and we will end up back in Arizona
3: every year. It took him nearly 50 years to come back for good, so he's looking forward to returning home after the journey. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua.
0: You can see pictures of Jerry and Lita Bice and find a video story about Patagonia Lake State Park on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.